Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with the Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your hosts for today's show. What are you doing, Greg? You, you, you seem to be a little deep in concentration this morning. Wordle. I, okay. All right. Back up. I told you this is not a competition. It's it's about your personal satisfaction of working mm-hmm. through a problem, keeping your brain sharp. Mm. I'm just happy you're finding joy in using your mind at this age. Brad, your words are dripping with insincerity. This is all about competition. You got Wordle in five today, and I'll have you know, I have three letters on the first guess. I'm going to crush you. Let's see. A and I, those those got to go together somehow. You've got this all wrong, Greg. Comparison is the thief of joy, right? You you <laughs> you just you got to just keep working through it. You know, you got to mm. you just but don't let your mind atrophy. You know, you just got to keep working that muscle, Greg. That's what it's really important at this point. Oh, this is definitely a competition, my friend. We are competing. Why do you keep sending me wordles at something like five in the morning every day? It, Your wordle a, results, I should I, say. I, I, it, it's encouragement, Greg. I'm simply encouraging you to take up Wordle and to, you know, avoid some of those things that can happen at your age, mm-hmm. you know, like keep your <laughs> mind active, don't break your hip, that kind of stuff. I, you know, I call it rubbing my rubbing my nose in it. That's what yeah. I say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Greg, while you're chewing the food of sweet and bitter fancy, I would like <laughs> to remind everyone that we've come to the end of season four here at Silvacast. And as we often do on the last episode of the season, we'd like to talk about something more philosophical. So today on Silvacast, we're going to reflect on the science of silviculture itself with our good friend, Marcella Windmuller Campioni, Associate Professor of Silviculture at the University of Minnesota. Greg, just like you need to keep your brain sharp with Wordle, silviculture Mm -hmm. is all about lifelong learning. Ah, well, I guess I will agree with you on that. And as always, I really look forward to sitting down with Marcella. So I will set down my wordle right now, Brad. Very good. But I will have you know, I am going to pick it back up later and I will beat you. The Family Forest Carbon Program pays landowners to improve the health of their land and increase the long-term value of their property. The program equips landowners with resources and support to implement sustainable practices that help them reach their goals, while also improving the health of their forests and our planet. To learn more about how you can access the benefits for your forest, visit familyforestcarbon.org. And now back to the show. Marcella, welcome to Silvacast. I'm so excited to be here and like, thank you for having me on. It's just, I'm so excited for the conversation we're about to have. Greg, is that the first of our guests to ever say they're excited to be on the show? I think there was a couple others, but I'm not okay. sure they were being well, really sincere, but yeah. I think Marcella's being sincere. Yeah, I think so. Before we get started, Marcella, I just wanted to say, Congratulations on the 2023 National SAF Convention. 
because you were the program chair and both Brad and I were there and just, it was fabulous. The program was really diverse and a lot of great attendance. And I just want to congratulate you on that because I know how much work it was. No, thank you. And I also, for those, maybe this, some folks will be regional, but there's so many wonderful folks that I got to work with uh, through the committee, through SAF, through the speakers. And just, it was just a wonderful opportunity to bring so many good people together. And also uh, felt really, really lucky that we got to be in California that time of the year because it was 60 and sunny. And it was another week where I did not have a winter coat on. So yeah, it was nice. Yeah, really good talks and just a really nice program. I like the range of the talks too, because I thought there were some that were kind of those big picture items and then some kind of dug into the weeds on specific things, which which kind of covered the bases. I thought it was really good. Thank you. So now we are at the end of season four of Silvacast. Somebody's kept us around this long, but kind of at the end of the year, it's always a good time for us to think deep thoughts. And that reminded me of the old SNL skit, Deep Thoughts, with I think it was like John Handy or something. Or Jack Handy. Jack Handy. So cue the music. And now Deep Thoughts with Brad Hutnick. Oh, boy. (laughs) Greg, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Anywho, we'll we'll move on from that. <laughs> <laughs> you open that can of worms, Greg. You yeah, open that can yeah. of worms. So don't be no, surprised when stuff comes we out. We can move on. We can move on. So, Marcella, we had talked with Laura Kenefek, our colleague, and she said that you gave this really inspiring presentation. I think it was at last year's SAF National Convention on the role of silviculture and education. And I think that was a long with, was that with James Long? Yep. Yep. With Jim Long. From Utah State University. And Laura said, yeah, I was really pumped up after that conversation or after that presentation. So Brad and I thought this would be a really good time to have you back and reflect a little bit on that and this unique science that we all love that we call silviculture, a little bit about what it is how it's changed over the years, and where we're going with it. And what does it mean to be a silviculturist? And when I say that, I really mean everybody who works with forest vegetation is a silviculturist. And I think it's a little similar to maybe how the SAF National Convention started out was a conversation about what it means to be a forester. That's kind of where we would like to to talk around today. And Last time we talked, you said something and it really stuck with me. And maybe it's just because I like things really organized, but you said silviculture stands at the center of a well-ordered universe. And I wanted to know, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I want to give full credit because that's a Jim Long quote, but it also just really resonates with me. And it references, I think many silviculturists and foresters have that maybe remember it of that image where silviculture is the center and all these other disciplines. And it was a biometrician that put that figure Mm. together, but silviculture is at at the center with all these other disciplines needing to feed into what it means to make silvicultural decisions. So we can't do silviculture without biometricians, without soil scientists, without policy, uh, without the economics, without logging professionals, without wildlife ecologists, like the whole suite of what it means to think about 
why and how and the context which we manage forests. And for me, it just is like the center of like when silviculture is really, really working, it's when it's working with everyone else Mm -hmm. and like listening and taking things in and using all this deep knowledge and deep understanding of how these other parts of the ecosystem work to then put together a plan with a prescription and like using this information to think about trade-offs and think about like scenarios and just really structuring this out. And we, we all know nature never like nature hardly ever lets our plans move forward the way we think they're going to move forward. Mm -hmm. But it feels like I also like that structure and that opportunity for like feeling like I understand how the pieces are might play together. And it feels like silviculture really plays that center role. And maybe that's just like the bias and the lens I have as a silviculturist that like, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) we, we get to do that. I think, Brad, you sometimes say foresters and silviculturists are the people of the plan. Right. I I get that sense when I talk to other disciplines that they do things, but they don't necessarily have to go to the depth or or discussion even on some of the the elements that go into it that we do. So we really adhere to we we love that structure. And I think that's I I agree. I think silviculture does kind of sit within the within the, 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 the nexus of that structure for forestry. Yeah. And. Just thinking about the presentation, which you shared with Brad and I, uh, Marcella, you and Jim talked about some themes um, that are important parts of being a forester or a silviculturist. And I thought we could kind of go through some of those themes and really tease those out a little bit. And one of them that I took away from the presentation was uh, this role of um, and definition of silviculture and silviculturist. And that's really not always been the same. It's sort of evolved over time. Can you say something about that? Yeah, I think it's interesting when we look at those definitions from a really Western science, North American lens of like how at first, like silviculture was really defined in the face of like silvics, which is, which makes sense, right? Like silvics, the root word. And so silvics and that and it was really defined as the art of applying or understanding silvics and so if we think of silvics as like the life history and the personality of a tree it's like how do we understand a tree and then apply our understanding of that tree and it was really at that time really tree focused of like how do we understand that tree and then apply that to our management to our treatments to all these pieces understanding that there's art and nuance. And so that art piece really was a key part. And it really focused on like silvics. And like, we see that later development of like, kind of trying to pull apart what it means to be a forester and maybe a forester is different than a silviculturist. And we start seeing the science and the art. And then we see some of this later subdivisions as we think about all uh, the other disciplines and like, and we think about policy and we think about the role of uh, society, what that means. And then like, we start seeing, especially with the Society of American Foresters definition that like really contextualizing of like how it's not just silvics and the art of applying silvics, it's the art and science of how we manage and control like 
we still have we have that word control in there control regeneration establishment tending based on society's needs and values so we see like the slow expansion of of silviculture there's a recent commentary regarding like whether art still needs to be in silviculture mm-hmm. if we have enough science where can we utilize all these new technologies and so um, I think that was one of the pieces that our presentation last year at the SAF National Convention and a recent paper that just came out in Journal of Forestry is really kind of talking about how important and how critical art is within silviculture. And even like, what does it even mean, art? Like right. art, like as a word, we think of like maybe art class or like, but yeah. this nuance and creativity that has to come when we're a silviculturist. You know, it's interesting. So you paint a picture of, you know, we start with art and then we kind of get informed by science and then it becomes science and art. And really people are now, like you said, maybe thinking more science more than art. But it feels to me like maybe that's a, I don't know, like a hubris for forestry or maybe there's a lack of humility about what we know and what we don't know when we start to take that route. Oh, a hundred percent. And it feels like there's never been more need for that humbleness in terms of how all these aspects, whether it's climate change, whether it's shifting disturbance regimes, whether it's the level of interaction between all of that, and also adding in societal values, the role of all these forests. I mean, there's never been a more need for humbleness and this like acknowledgement of, wow, it really takes a lot to do silviculture. And so um, I know I'm not the only one who has said this, I think, on Silvacast. I mean, silviculture, I always hate when my students are like, well, I'm just a forester. And it's like, are you kidding? Like, if we think about regeneration, holy cow, how many parts have to come together for successful regeneration to happen, whether it's artificial, whether it's from seed, whether it's from suckering, all these pieces have to come together for successful regeneration. And some of them are not even in your control. So you are planning for a future that you do or do not know if you will have the conditions to do this. And so I think it's so critical to acknowledge all the information we need to have but also the role that like we can't control hardly we can't control so many aspects. So knowing how forests kind of move into this next stage really relates to that adaptive capacity and maybe that art and creativity of how we how we move forward once we see what does happen and use adaptive management. So what is that when we say that silviculture is an art, does that mean is that talking about that creativity, the part that we don't know that we basically learn through experience? I always am curious about this because I've kind of started out going, oh, I'm kind of a science egghead. So I don't really think art involves is involved in this at all. It's science. But then I, over the years, have changed that thought and thought, well, there is a lot of creativity that goes into this because there's so many unknowns. And you gain that creativity through sort of field experience and application. So is that what it means, the art part of it? I think it can mean so many things. And that was a really, as we started to write this response 
paper, this discussion paper of the art of silviculture, it became like, well, what is art? And we started to pull apart these pieces of, and so I think for me, art has this layered approach. And I think one of the things that always resonated with me from like the start of silviculture at Michigan Tech with Linda Nagel was definition and just this idea of her bringing wonder into the process. So it's, there is this underlying science, but I think one of the things that draws us as foresters and natural resource managers is like the idea that every day can be a surprise. And so you're going to stand. And even if it's a stand, like I think about some of these stands I use for teaching, like I go there every single year, but every single year, there's something new that I'm surprised that I'm like, huh, I was not expecting that, or as I, I was not expecting that combination, or wow, look at look at how this is showing up, or why didn't I notice that before? And so I think there's this wonder that like we get from being outside and seeing and observing, and that can be from repeated observations, and that could be from seeing something uh, at a time period where you're like, oh my gosh, that's such a. It's been ten years. It's been twenty years, or seeing a new site where you're like, well, I've been to so many Northern hardwood stands. And then you walk into another one and you're like, oh my gosh, how is this? Why are you functioning like that? And I feel like those are all the questions that we never capture with any of our quantitative measures. To me, I'm, it seems like when we, you know, we're, we're very used to saying silviculture, the art and science, and you just kind of skip past it and you kind of stay with the science, but you don't really think about the art so what, and I know this is probably going to be one of those, it depends kind of situations, but it feels like we need to, like you painted the role, you painted the picture of, of that evolving relationship between the two. So what is that proper relationship of art? Is it, are they equals? Are they, is one in service to the other? How, how do you think those actually sit? Oh, that's a really good question. I would almost put art a little bit above science, but with the idea that science is maybe serving the art, I want to make it clear, like we can't do silviculture without all this foundational science. And like thinking about even with silvics, we acknowledge a tree and how a tree is. We have generalities, but like a tree is going to be a tree based on where that tree is at in the site, in its life history, in its time, in all this context of like, what was the disturbance? So like we have some generalities, but even that we still acknowledge a tree is going to have this broad features that may or may not fit the generality. So I feel like we use the science to create our foundation and to give us direction. We have to like really set that direction in terms of the nuance and the art and the humbleness. And so I don't know, maybe a good analogy is I love cooking. I love cooking. I love looking at recipes and then figuring out like, what pieces of information I need to know to think about how I'm going to make something. Baking, on the other hand, I feel like I really struggle with because it feels like there's really critical like ratios between like sugar and flour or like, uh, especially when they start asking for weighted amounts of butter and shifted flour. And it feels like you do need to follow the direction. There does become this art, but it feels like unless you have that base, you can't do the art. Whereas like cooking is like this 
integration and like maybe this building of knowledge. And maybe this is where I'm not enough of a baker. And so I hope maybe there's at least one or two bakers on Silvacast that can like shoot me an email and be like, oh, no, no. Once you get good enough, you're good. (laughs) Help me keep building that skill. But it seems like that art, the science is in service of the art. And it's really that evolution of building this information that we have with our science, but then understanding how we apply that is going to be so different at each site. And that only comes, I think, with time and learning. I'm just thinking of some John Bailey analogy between muffins and cupcakes, was it? Yeah. Yep. Silviculture is like that's right. Making muffins. I don't know. That's right. He said he said we're not baking cakes. We're we're making muffins because you can just throw it together. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, but it's it's not as dependent. I think your point, Marcella, is good. It has to have the science as the foundation. It's not anything goes. And sometimes you will hear people in the woods say, well, no two foresters or marka stand the same anyway. Or, you know, they they will basically sort of put off explaining why they set something up the way they did. When you really still have to go back to the foundational science, you can't throw that out. It isn't anything goes. No, and I think that's where it's really interesting teaching at the National Advanced Silviculture Program is I teach the first module. And so we're really refreshing or like starting this journey that folks take in that set series of classes on like, what are these foundational pieces and thinking about the regeneration triangle. And some folks thinking about the regeneration triangle is not something they've thought about for like years or a decade plus, but it's like all these pieces that every day as a forester and as a silviculturist, you're thinking about regeneration when you do a regeneration harvest of how you're creating those conditions. But sometimes we forget those are the tools. And so I think that is where I often have a unique unique perspective as an academic is like, that's always what I'm talking about. And so it's can be interesting to see how these land managers and these foresters I respect so deeply are doing this, but not giving themselves credit for how they're pulling these pieces together. And so I think that sometimes, as we think about the role of continuing education, it's it's learning new things, but it's also remembering all the things that we're doing every single day to give people credit for like, oh yeah, I am thinking about soil moisture. I am thinking about that seed bed. I am thinking where my seed source is coming from. And like, what are these conditions? I'm doing all that. I'm just not always articulating these pieces. And that can be really important, especially when we think about transitions and like that legacy planning of how long our forest ecosystems are. And so like all those parts may be within the planning framework, but just never articulated. But if we can articulate that, that means the person coming next or like two or three people down the line can have a better understanding of I'm stepping into this forest, not having seen what you did 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, but now understand the framework that you were working. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of talking about nuance, right? Like, so so people are bringing these things together, doing nuance. It's really hard to teach, but how do you even, you can't really quantify it, right? How do you actually present nuance? Yeah, I think that's where it really comes from. Like, I, I don't think I can teach nuance. I think I can teach a lot of foundation and I can teach, I think I can teach being creative. And so giving these foundational aspects and then asking students, how would you apply it without constraints? Because 
each organization a student enters in is going to have a whole different set of constraints that they're going to be working in. And so I think that's where I really rely on students doing internships, students having these experiences and working with professionals, really being able to connect these pieces together. Because I think my job is to teach this foundation and to teach how to potentially put the pieces together. And putting those pieces together might look a little different within this academic realm than what it's going to look like in the field. But maybe some of that creativity stays with the person throughout their career and is like, why am I doing this? Why we've, I've heard we've done, we manage X forest type this way, but why? Help me understand the why. Yeah. Greg, for some reason, that reminds me of the the quote that we've used a couple of times, it was um, uh, the forester who practices much writes, but little and the who writes or who writes much, but practices little was this guy, Heinrich Kata, who wrote that in 1816. And so it's kind of like the world is always going on. Like we, we never really communicate well that nuance of what we're doing. We, we kind of, maybe the, the stuff we can record on the paper, we do really well, but some of the rest of it's just a little bit lost. Yeah. And I have this maybe hope that platforms like the Silviculture Library, as we like post pictures, open up and talk about that and give some of that more longevity or like almost a place outside. Because I do think we do this really well when we're in field tours together. And that's whether we're with fellow foresters, whether that's with other folks within the realm of the profession, or when we're with like folks from the general public who have questions. I feel like when we're in the field, like we really communicate that really well, including both the science and the art. There's been so many cool times when like a forester is like, we have this prescription, but we kept like, we are looking at this and we saved this or like, do you see the slope? We couldn't do this here. And so we talk about all that nuance together in the field. But yeah, I agree. I think it gets hard when we're trying to write about that, but I think cell phones and like digital cameras make the use of like capturing a picture, right? Because those pictures are worth a thousand words to be able to like help move that into something that can transcend an experience that is only a field experience, but one that can maybe expand it or allow greater conversation outside of that one event. Yeah, I think of the trials work. So the Silviculture Library documenting of trials and workshops is really critical. And we see this when we try to develop silvicultural guidelines. There's only so much that is in research and academia. There's a whole bunch that goes into managing a particular forest that is basically passed down experience. And so just some way to share that is really important. One of the things you mentioned, Marcella, um, was the role of foresters and silviculturists has sort of changed over time. You've you alluded to this. And we had this conversation opening up the SAF National Convention. And so I just want to talk a little bit about what does it actually mean to be a forester and a silviculturist today and, and maybe how that's changed a little bit. Brad and I, we talk about this because sometimes this comes into real life where foresters, some foresters may view their world as pretty narrow and others really broad. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think it's been an interesting period of reflection for the past two years because. If we go back to the 2022 convention, Katie Fernholtz, kind of in the closing plenary, really called folks to think about what it means to be a forester. And so, and I'll use her reference of if you run, you can call yourself a runner. If you cook, you can call yourself a chef. Like those are activities that we do and we can use this language, but sometimes it feels like The role of forester, like there are so many people who are, in my definition, working in forest and are foresters, but maybe because they didn't get formal training, whether that's from a BAS or like advanced degrees within forestry, they don't feel like they get to use that term. And so I think it's been interesting to see, and we saw some of this with the language and the definitions of how. In a Western science and like academic setting in North America, how like who got to use the word forester really changed a little bit over time, especially with other disciplines kind of moving uh, or like specializations within like academic settings of like well, there's a forestry degree, but you can also get a wildlife management degree or hydrology degree, but you're really working in forest hydrology. Are you a forester? Are you a hydrologist? What do you get to call or a soil scientist? And so it seems like as we moved into specialization, that's allowed so many great things in terms of really deep knowledge on so many aspects of what it means to manage and think about forest ecosystems. But maybe when we've gone in that specialization, we haven't done a great job of like thinking about how we actually all connect under this broad lens of a, what it means to be a forester. And so I I think that definition really is like anyone who works in a forest ecosystem. I hope we move more to going back to like a forester is truly a generalist. A forester is all these aspects of what it means to think about forest ecosystems. And so we can then specialize in terms or, or add another layer of what aspect maybe you want to focus on. But like I think of a forester as this truly generalist that reminds me of my question that i was that i would that you and i i basically uh so marcella i I bent greg's ear on my question about this at the national convention numerous times but um we think about that history of forestry so we have like the gifford pinchot and muir and kind of the whole hetch hetchy and stuff like that but we clearly basically broke one out as a forester and one not so in that view or kind of using that definition we'd look at john muir as a forester now correct Yeah, I think we look at so many people as a forester. And I think we maybe not have certain divisions. And it's interesting where like this lens of economics was a priority within the goals and objectives of forestry. It's a pretty narrow window where like that maximum sustained yield was like the overarching lens, which a lot of forests were managed. But that's kind of stuck with forestry where it's like, wow, that's a small window, but there's so, and I think that's kind of limited some people of like seeing themselves as foresters because they're saying like, well, I'm managing a forest, but economics aren't my goal. And it's like, great. Like I, great. Hi, forester. Hi, silviculturist. You're doing all like, there's no where in our definition, in our terms where that economics has to be a priority of why we practice forestry. And that's kind of that evolution where, it started out from this maximum sustained yield and this production viewpoint 
but now it's really getting diverse as far as what foresters are asked to manage for. Uh, and that can be ecological, it can be carbon, it can be restoration. And it kind of, to me, it goes back to the people of the plan. And part of the plan is what are your objectives? And as a forester, I'm going to ask that and say, well, I'll help you try to get those objectives, no matter what they are. It feels to me like one of these underlying currents that's coming through, and, and you you spoke about it in that presentation, was new technologies are playing a role here too, right? So they're basically, we're opening up new worlds just simply because we can access new information, which basically goes out there. So do do technologies kind of change the role of, of foresters or silviculturists? I had the same conversation with someone maybe a week and a half ago about technology, and especially when we think about LIDAR and all these amazing tools, because they really truly are like thinking about how we can use GPS. And I think about uh, even within my career, how like a GPS unit has really shrunk down and like how few folks in my lab even potentially use GPS and how many people are just using phones and like Avenza and how those pieces have changed and what flexibility and opportunity that has given foresters. And I think of that as like, if we're thinking about that science and that quantitative piece, I think of all these technologies as more options to really try to capture information. But in that conversation, there was like we were talking about technology and it was like, technology can never capture art. Technology can never capture nuance technology. Like we can use all these informations to help us make decisions, but it's still going to be a forester. They are going to be the ones walking the forest. They're going to be the ones interacting with the forest. They're going to be the ones that know like how this site feels in the spring. I'm always struck with because technology improves, but there's always something beyond that improvement. And so you're kind of getting there, but the, but that art and experience is kind of just has to be informed by it. But it, so it's, I'm always struck by that. And I was really intrigued with this idea of, and what, what came, Greg and I talked about this at the uh, national convention, there was a presentation where they talked about tree census, as opposed to tree inventory using LIDAR and other technologies, which which is this whole new world of of information, right? Like now you know every tree in the stand, which is just incredible, but it still doesn't get rid of, but what am I going to do, right? Right. Okay. Can you actually know every tree in the stand or do you just have data points? So I think that's one of the pieces too is do you do you actually know or is this data overload or what is the processing time between pieces of information? And I'm guessing those are going to move start moving so quickly where we might know every piece of information or like maybe there's going to be a time where our cell phones, like we can pull up that LIDAR and know exactly where we're standing in terms of height and canopy and whatever. But there's never, never a chance where those pieces actually get at the feeling of a site. And so I don't, I think there is that art or like feeling or nuance that only comes from being in a forest and being in a forest under these different conditions or seeing like, oh man, web soil, soil, soil survey said it was this, this soil series and like the soil pits that we dug um, confirmed that, but man, because of the, like there was something 
there is something that caused or the timing of the rain events or whatever, man, we could not ever do a spring harvest, even if it was rated as something just because of how the season went. So there's there's got to be that continued acknowledgement of we never can capture everything in the forest and we only can manage when we actually like take into account those nuances and those pieces that we can't measure. Sometimes I feel like I have data overload too, and I don't know what pieces of information really are the most important. But I also feel like if I can tease out the best information or use the best information, it helps uh, inform my observations, like it changes my observations. So I guess that's a real challenge for foresters is what do we do with all this information? And we got to know enough about it to know what's important and what's not. Yeah. And I think that's going to be like a critical piece as we think about the educational component of like, yeah, how are we teaching pieces or like, what are the tools that folks need to know to then be able to use these new technologies? And so, but we can't only think about new technologies without thinking about like base. We still need to be able to use a compass and understand our pace. We still like, I don't see that going away ever because we know technology fails. And so we still need to be able to read and maps and like all these baseline information while at the same time, yeah, processing digital LIDAR scans and like pairing those two can feel really contrasting or like, how do we keep a forestry education that's still looking to the future while balancing all these parts that it means to like manage and do forestry. It feels to me like sometimes we just need new, maybe we have the data, but we need new ways to, to, to process it or think about it. And, and I think about when, so Greg and I, we get to go out to a stand and we're, we're encouraging manage for heterogeneity, right? Get diversity in the stand or do all these things. But then how do you measure that? Right? Like, like we get stand averages back and they all look the same, you know? So, so how do you know whether you're making progress? So it feels like, like maybe it's just packaging some of that information differently or I don't know, but it, it seems like a real quandary. Yeah. Maybe that's where like those stand, those forest census can give you that information of, wow, I created X gaps or like, look at the range of diameters in this section versus that. And so, but I do think it is potentially increasing the quantitative tools that we're going to need to use. And like, or even thinking about repackaging the tools that we have instead of stand summaries, do we need plot summaries by like potential treatment category? Or like, how do we build out from the nuance of in uneven age systems, we have tools to think about marking guides and like BDQ and SDI or all these other pieces of, well, we take from this diameter class, we take one of two, but we always leave birch. How do we use some of those tools that we have and like in like think about what it means for heterogeneity and variable density and all these wonderful pieces of management of yeah, irregular shelter wood. Yeah. All of this stuff gets more and more complex sometimes, it seems like with irregular shelter woods and uh micro stands and multi-treatment silviculture. And I I can't say how many times I've had foresters say, I don't know how to define this prescription, 
or this treatment because every plot is different that I go into. So I guess as going back to what you said in the beginning, Marcella, that's the art of it is trying to put all this together in a, a, an effective way. Yeah. And that's maybe where if we think about those new technologies and the ability to link plots on a map with information, maybe that's where we don't use summary statistics as much. We're using really plot by plot information to like describe what we're seeing. And I know like even me hearing that, I was like, oh, that means where's my diameter distribution? Where's like... <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, but it, it does. It, and it starts like this reframing. And I think that's where it starts moving into like this space of change and uncomfortableness of, well, we've always done this. And then like acknowledging maybe some of our current tools don't match where we're going with our prescription. So how do we think about what are the tools or what are the ways we can summarize? And I think, I mean, we've seen this with Excel and R and all these other pieces like of technology come and be really socially acceptable. Excel wasn't always the way we summarize things within forestry. It was just a tool that like foresters found really useful and same with R. And so what is that next piece in terms of like, how do we link some of the data that we're getting with these new online uh, platforms that have this wealth of information where we're not moving into number overload or um, but really using that to support decision making. Greg, someplace uh, Mike Demchak and some of the people in in Canada who have been working with their regular uh, systems and micro stands are now like they're thinking to themselves, now you guys are talking. <laughs> Just kind of going back, Marcella, to some of those themes, there's something that I really want to talk about. And you mentioned it earlier, and that is how do foresters, silviculturists, researchers, all of us, how do we keep that wonder in the practice of silviculture, that innovation. And I think in that presentation, you talked about like a few different recommendations, maybe, I don't know what to call them, on <laughs> how we keep that. And I really want to touch base on that because I think that's important for us to remember or keep in our minds of why we got into this in the first place. Yeah, and I think maybe that's where a lot of us get to pat ourselves on the back as we came into forestry because we really love forest. And so we came into this profession because of that like connection or desire to do cha like to change, to think about these systems. And so I guess that's where I think it can be really valuable to like be able to still have these connections to forest. And I think about how even at all these stages as people move through different levels within forestry, we still get to be in forest. Even if we're at this upper administrative level, there's still these opportunities and they become maybe rarer and rarer as you get at that, but you're still coming back to the forest. And I don't think there's anything more special than seeing and feeling a forest. And so I think the other piece that 
I think forestry has done well is this idea of lifelong learning and like mentoring. And that's, I feel like from my perspective, been a component of forestry and like, especially with Society of American Foresters and accreditation and all these things, we forestry really does take that seriously. We are lifelong learners and we are always learning and building and thinking. And maybe that's where like silviculture gets to come in with, we have this toolbox and we'll always think about what tools we have or like, how do we develop tools or like, man, is this tool appropriate? We're just constantly creative people and like thinking about that. And so I feel like for some of that, there's both this, like, if we think about maybe big picture, like each organization has to think about how do you accept or how do you build in those opportunities for new thinking and for creative thinking? And then like from an educational standpoint, how do we acknowledge and nurture and set students up? They came into these disciplines really full of wonderful of creativity, full of like this passion. And so how do we take those tools and like those people that come into this and like set them up for success? And like, what does that look like over a lifetime? If we're thinking about looking for opportunities, kind of expanding, being creative, then on the flip side, we like at a number of different levels, we have to be okay with uncertainty then too, right? Like we basically have to be able to brace it. And I know like Greg and I work for the state of Wisconsin. And so larger agencies, larger companies, they're probably a little less comfortable with uncertainty. How would you, is there a good way to kind of embrace uncertainty as part of what we do? Yeah. I think that's a great question because that's one where I feel like I get to put my academic hat of like uncertainty is wonderful. And like, I'm not the one that like goes into a stand after like trying something and like everything looked good on paper. And then there was a drought or there was three inches of consecutive rain over a 24 hour period or something where you're just like, I couldn't have planned for any of this. Or just, it was, it was off. We were off by one year with the mast year or something like that. So I, I think it's starting to reconceptualize what it means for failure, right? We don't always hit objectives right away. And what does that mean in terms of how we reconsider what the plan is and how we move forward and how we shift it from like, wow, this really did fail to like, oh, okay, X, Y, or Z happened that didn't allow for regeneration and not really classifying it as a failure, which is like, feels like we're putting that judgment on a system that we can't really control, but rather acknowledging we're dealing with these hugely complex systems And sometimes those parts aren't going to line up how we thought them they were, but what does that give us going forward? And right, that I feel like that could also be an excuse for bad management or like not accounting for the science, but it's somehow striking that balance that when we try new things, and especially when we try new things at operational scales, those pieces are going to need time to like develop and not to be hopefully this is where like that upper leadership can kind of brace some of that storm of it takes time to try new things. And like, I have faith in the people that are working on the ground that they, what they're doing 
is trying to figure out the process because that's all we're doing is right trying to figure out our process. And if we go back even in that 1910, 1920, 1930, like we were trying to figure out regeneration in the lake states. We were trying to figure out how to regenerate species. And that included artificial regeneration of like red pine and jack pine. And those are all species, like especially red pine that we take for granted. Like we can get survival greater than 95% when we replant red pine. That took how many, how many trials, how many decades of understanding the process there? And that's one species. And now we're dealing with a changing climate. So that uncertainty goes up, right? Yeah. 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 Changing climate, right? Both of you mentioned like increased heterogeneity, increased structural complexity, all of those things, right? We're no longer just managing one species. Does it make it more important? So you talked about, you know, we're figuring out the process and we have, like Greg just mentioned, we have all these things that are kind of like wrenches in the system now. So things are changing, things are, does it elevate the need for, for learning as a specific objective when we do management? Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think it hopefully elevates the documentation piece too, of like, how do we, how do we capture what pieces happen the way we expected them to happen or like we predicted or hypothesized and how did things shift? And like, I think about sometimes for some of these trials and like the wonderfulness of being able to go back and being like, okay, we didn't see what we were expecting year one, two, or three, but my gosh, like year seven, we saw something really unexpected. And like, what, what does that mean in terms of also patience or like at what point? Yeah. What, at how much patient or how much flexibility do we are, is a stand given. And I know that is really based on policy and a whole bunch of things outside of a lot of foresters control. But I think that's where those trials and like some of these remeasurements and monitoring can really help kind of gauge expectation or like what, what can we expect right away? I was just thinking of something. So just to kind of summarize that, because I think it's really cool to remember why we got into this in the first place and and just why we're excited about silviculture and doing stuff. And so what I took away from what you said, Marcelo, was to get in the woods, keep that a part of what you do. I think you also talked a bit about observation. So just observing what's going on. So that's part of that art part that we don't always see in the data and the numbers. You mentioned give things time. So go back and look at those things. And then also remember that that lifelong learner part of it, keep learning because nobody has all of this knowledge and all of these pieces and it's continually changing. So we just have to keep trying to pull in new ideas and new thoughts and think about what we do and try to try to learn from that, as well as all this technology and information that's coming at us. So so learning becomes a huge component of this. Yeah. And I think maybe just adding on one more piece is like seeking that mentorship and like seeking mentors across the disciplines and across different levels of where a person at is is at career-wise. So seeing like mentorship as this multifaceted approach of it's not just learning from someone at a later stage of their career, but it's this relationship building where 
both parties are learning together and learning from each other. And so I think that's been something I've found extremely valuable within like the academic silviculture community is this mentorship and also this openness of I get to take away and learn so much from these folks, but it's also this openness of my experiences and my um, opinion and my me being getting to be me at where I am at my stage. And so I think that's something forestry has also really been open to is this idea that foresters at all stages have valuable information that they are bringing to the table. And one of the things I get a huge amount out of is this interaction between people in the field, field foresters, and the researchers like yourself that are working on specific issues and problems. And just those conversations are so rich and really kind of generate new ideas. And so those are the interactions or the kind of the mentorships across those fields or areas that I have found really useful over time. Some of the best discussions, I always think when we're in the woods, the best days start with something like that's odd or (laughs) that's interesting, you know, or something like that, because then you really get to dive in as opposed to just, okay, it's the same old, same old, off we go. But, But once something makes you think, then you're like, oh, all right, well, let's dig into this. Let's figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. No, you know, this whole conversation, Greg, reminds me of a, a quote I read recently, oh, and I thought no. you guys would enjoy this. No, no, it's a good one. This is, you don't, you have, you have no idea how many times Brad starts with, this reminds me of a quote. Go yeah, ahead. That's right. And now, Deep Thoughts with Brad Hutnick. I, okay, here we go. And this was guy uh, from uh, Bernard Borman, who's a research ecologist in the Pacific Northwest. And he said, in the end, we hope that forest management can be viewed like science as a never-ending set of questions rather than a series of disconnected truths, which I, I thought, God, that's, that's just about it, right? Like you want things to kind of, like we always have questions and questions should lead to other questions and we should, we should always be building upon things. Yeah. Well, this is where several beers or whiskeys or things like that kind of evolve into deeper conversations, but we'll, we'll stop at coffee for today. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Marcella, for this conversation. There's a lot of things to think about here. And, and as I said, just kind of the interactions between us on just beer conversations like this, but also as well as practical research issues and conversations that I just really appreciate those interactions. So thank you very much for coming along. Me too. And I think there's one of the things that maybe like closing, like coming back to like convention, I find it so invigorating being around all these foresters. And there was like over 1700 foresters at Sacramento and like the amount of passion that comes from people spending all this time together. And we're talking about forest and we all get to nerd out on how cool these pieces are or like dig into like these deep conversations together. And I think um, I just always feel grateful to be able to share that passion. And like, I, this was just really, really fun. And also being in the community that gets excited about talking about these like nuanced and critical pieces of what we do that just are these 
big picture, like like you said, these conversations that can last hours upon hours <laughs> at different points in the night. I think that succinctly describes our Silvercast audience. So <laughs> I think that's good. Yeah. Thanks, Marcella. And I'm sure we'll be talking soon about various other aspects of silviculture. <laughs> yep. This is a great conversation. And now a word from our sponsors. Looking for heavy-duty construction and forestry equipment? Check out McCoy Construction and Forestry, your John Deere dealer. With 16 dealerships spanning the Midwest, McCoy offers new or used construction and forestry equipment, rental, parts and service, and product support. Visit McCoyCF.com and follow them on social media to see what McCoy has to offer. Today's episode of Silvercast is also brought to you by... Since 1940... Foresters across North America have relied on Nelson Paint for tree marking solutions. Nelson Paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field and the Nelspot tree marking guns that last the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, whatever you send us, and share them with our listeners. Brad, over these past four seasons, we've received many great ideas for Silvacast topics from our listeners. And next year, we will feature a number of those listener requests from topics like the role of mycorrhiza in silviculture, old growth management, and EAB silviculture. And just because we have season five scheduled, well, first that doesn't mean that we can't adjust that schedule, but it doesn't <laughs> mean we but it doesn't mean we don't want your ideas. So please continue to send your ideas for new episodes, things that you think are interesting, things you think would be really good for us to discuss or explore on Silvacast. Yeah, trust us, we're always adjusting. Oh yeah. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing wfc at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or a comment if you like. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team. Susan Barrett, our Editor-in-Chief, Joe Rogers, our IT Master, theme music by Paul Frader, and of course, UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. Music